Hey guys, this is Georgia with Ancient Aliens, and you're listening to That One Time I Was Abducted by Aliens with Jamie and Bree. You're listening to That One Time I Was Abducted by Aliens. I'm Jamie. I'm Bree, and we're two sides of the coin. Hey everybody, welcome back to today's episode. How are you doing today, Bree? I'm great, Jamie. How are you? I'm doing good. And we got another interview on our schedule here today. We have Maria Whitley. She is a second generation dowser who is a leading authority on the geodaic system for earth energies. She was taught how to decode and divine the land by her late father, Dennis, who was considered to be one of the UK's top master dowsers. She is an accomplished author of books on sacred sites and dowsing and has researched the esoteric design canons of prehistoric sites. Drudaic ceremony enclosures and the Knights Templar for many years. Maria has lectured and given workshops in America and Europe and has also appeared on the History Channel. In the late 1980s, Maria studied astrology and tarot and during the 1990s turned her attention to hypnotherapy, past life regression and reflexology. Welcome Maria to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So we want to start all the way from the beginning because this is a little bit out of our normal realm, but we're super interested in getting to know more about your work. So what better way to start than for you to just kind of guide us into how this all began? And also, I'm more curious with what exactly is dowsing? Okay, thanks, Bree. Yes, well, really, I got into all of this because my late father was, as you mentioned in the introduction, a master dowser. So I grew up with everything paranormal and supernatural. And my father used to go to numerous ancient sites. He was an author himself on Stonehenge, ancient sites uh, for across the world, actually. So I really followed in his footsteps and I became interested in Dowson from a very, very young age. So the ancient sites and the mysteries that surround them have been with me for all of my life. And I feel quite, you know, privileged to have that. And also I inherited all of the master Dowsers work from Guy Underwood and many other master Dowsers as well. So they see me as a kind of person that is really leading and is in charge of all these surveys so it's really quite fascinating and dowsing is amazing because we are familiar with dowsing through water divining finding wells for farmers but in the teachings that i have had over the years from chinese geomancers to european master dancers was there's nuances there's energies of gaia earth energies that can rise from the kind of core of the earth, if you will, and rise up. And they're associated with different types of water. For instance, we're all familiar with rainwater. It falls from the sky, fills up the aquifers, but there's another type of water and that's born within Gaia. It's very pure, it's very sacred. It can be up to seven miles down as re recent research has shown. But my family have been talking about this for 25 years and that manifests a spiral pattern. That's what the ancients were looking for to cite the pyramids, Stonehenge, Avebrehenge above. It's the core design factor of placement of an ancient site. Oh, okay. So these areas, do you think, have become sacred sites just for that? Because there's that type of sacred Gaia water deep underneath the land. 
Well, a power center has so much going on. It's not just one thing. It will have spiral patterns, deep waters, lays or ley lines. It will have geodetic lines. It will have what's called earth voltages, uh, portals, vortexes. Put all oh. of that together in a ceremonial landscape. And bear in mind, a ceremonial landscape such as Stonehenge or Avebury-henge, and Avebury is the world's largest stone circle, can be up to three miles wide. The wow. Giza Plateau is huge. It's not just one pyramid. Do you see what I mean? It's a ceremonial landscape. Mm -hmm. And when we kind of think about that, there is so, so much going on. And that's not even taken into consideration. The astronomical alignments, like the alignment to the sun, the alignment to the stars. When all of that comes together, that's a power place. Oh, my goodness. So do you think that they had a way of drilling down and gathering this water. I mean, I only imagine that it could do something spiritual if we were to consume that. I mean, compared to the water that we tend to drink now, I know it's been polluted and people are becoming um, more conscious about the types of water, you know, like alkaline, for example. So do you think that if we had a way to drill down into these spots and, and consume this water, that it would have some type of effect on, on all types of our, our physical body, but like etheric body as well? It's more metaphysical. For one, I would hate the thought of it being drilled because you would go through layer after layer and it would pollute. Mm, because water will find the least resistance mm -hmm. to trickle down. So I don't, I wouldn't want that to happen. But in esoteric water uh, divining law, that when we think about it, if we got deep water at an ancient site, water has memory. Okay, mm. so it's the akashic record of place. That's the first thing, okay? So it records everything that was happened there that we can tap into. We are made up of water. You know, we are over 70% uh, of water. So in my teachings and in my work to do with ancient sites and sacred yin water, as I call it, or Gaia water, it's about cleansing our own bodies from the inside out as well, as well as tapping into Gaia's memory field. And when you go to an ancient site, I always say to people, go there in your power and in your love, the power of love, because the place will memorize you. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to go there in a kind of bad mood day, you know, bad hair day, as we say in, a, in the UK, yeah. then that's, that's your first impression to the ancient sites. So mm -hmm. I think if we kind of think about our own attitudes in relation to place, even if it's, you know, there's lots of underground water. There's underground water beneath my house. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some types of underground water, the ones that fall from, you know, the water that falls from the sky, that fills up the aquifer, that's been known by Dow says since the 18th century to be carcinogenic. It's not good to live above. Mm -hmm. So we, we can decode a place, but still realize that that uh, memory field is being associated with the underground water so there's a metaphysical side to water and a physical side to water and so where we live and what we live above is especially important to our health 
I've always heard, you know, people say that, you know, crystals and rocks that they build, you know, houses or sites upon also are are these catalysts for holding these type of information. So it's interesting that you're saying that the water is also holding this information because it seems like we have to stop thinking about our environment as as rocks and water and start thinking about it as a living, breathing entity that is able to absorb information around you at all times. That's right. You see, and de- depending on the geology. So, for for example, the pyramids. We all know the pyramids, and we can all visualize Giza Plateau, and that's above limestone. So, when water flows through limestone, it's gentle and meandering. Mm-hmm. When water flows through, like the Arkansas crystal beds, to to give an example, yeah, it forms it. a zigzag mm-hmm. chevron pattern that is more conducive to making yourself uh, unwell and tired or too zappy, for, for instance, because what has been noticed, there was a survey done from the 1970s to uh, I think about the 1980s and the middle of the 90s by Dr. Kathy Batchelor, and she should be celebrated for her work, yet she is ignored by mainstream scientists because she did a survey on 11,000 houses and found that people that lived above what's called the curry net which is a global uh, grid system discovered by Dr. Uh, Manfred Curry and when that curry grid crosses water she knew that was a carcinogenic house and so she looked into 11,000 and realized that you could have any therapy you wanted you could have acupuncture you could have orthodox chemotherapy radiotherapy but if you returned to that carcinogenic bed placement your body won't self-heal so they also discovered that a third of all hospital admissions in germany were down to geopathic stress living above bad points in the earth but yet that even though that was scientifically proved by physicians doctors who got involved in dousing for these things by the time the 90s uh, came, all of this information was literally uh, set to one side and ignored and at our peril, I think. That is so fascinating. So do you think it, it's something that we should start thinking of when we find a place to live, where we find somewhere we want to settle into, that we should look into these things? Because it sounds like that can greatly impact our life. I mean, it sounds like it would be almost the most important thing when you're thinking of someplace to move. Uh, Absolutely. And that's an excellent uh, point to raise. And uh, absolutely, because it's a fundamental thing. Where we live will affect our health. There were certain signs of geopathic stress. For example, uh, in a bed placement, you might wake up in a funny position because your body, when it's relaxed, is avoiding negative energy, if you Mm -hmm. see what I mean. So you might wake up in a funny position. The other thing is you grind your teeth. You wake up fatigued. You know, Mm -hmm. there are quite, that's just to name but a few uh, symptoms of geopathic stress. But uh, if we look at the placement of where we live, not just for ourselves, which is a great thing, you know, because it really is. But let's think of it on a wider social benefit. Uh, Hospitals placed on good energy and avoiding bad energy Mm -hmm. because there's certain really good types of earth energy that are conducive to good health. Imagine this, there's a grid system that has been known uh, by a physicist since the 1980s that can improve your uh, way of communication. So the ancient Knights Templar would place the pulpit of where they spoke in church on it. 
Now imagine if we we could do that for autistic children and, and, and children that could stutter and we start to live in harmony with Gaia and I'm sure that, you know, we would all benefit. And that's my vision and that's my way forward. So how do you think that the ancients found these these sites and these places? I mean, how far back does dowsing go? Do you think that the people that created these these sacred sites were using dowsing in that way? Or do you think it was someone outside of Earth that brought those areas to our ancestors' attention? In, uh, it's dated as far back as 6000 BC, depicted in cave paintings of the Paleolithic era. There is a scene where it is suggested that there's a dowser giving a dowsing lesson to people. So it, it goes back, you know, thousands and thousands of years. And in the Neolithic period here in the UK, that's five and a half thousand years ago, just to get a timeline going, mm -hmm. um, there was wells being bored. Well, there's only two ways that you know where underground water is, and that's if you know how animals behave around mm -hmm. underground water, because certain animals are attracted to it, or you can douse. And, and dousing is the easiest way to, to find underground water. So I think they have had dousing as part of their esoteric metaphysical practices going back thousands and thousands of years. I'm just very interested in how they learned this how did they like who could have started um the use of dowsing and that's what makes me wonder if that could have sort of an ancient astronaut theory connection there do you consider that a possibility Anything's a possibility, but I think uh, what could have happened is that you see the traditional way of dousing for water and, and old villagers in England always used to have an old water diviner. They're not taught by anybody. They can just pick up a hazel twig that's pointed into a V shape and go off and find water, yet nobody's trained them. They just kind of, it's almost like it's kind of in the human psyche mm -hmm. uh, almost. So up until relatively recently, each uh, little old village in England would have one of these kind of dowsers that could find the wells for the farmer, the wells for people, uh, and uh, they were never, never, ever trained. That's so fascinating. I just, that's, that's crazy to me. I always just thought that we kind of invented the dowsing or, you know, but it's interesting to think of it as maybe something that was just in us and we just knew that. It's kind of crazy how our ancestors were so smart and yet we think of them as being- So primitive. As, yeah, so primitive, not as smart as us. As I know that, that, again, that is, uh, you know, such a misnomer because, you know, if, if you put Neolithic man or woman next to, uh, you know, uh, us here today and you everyone was dressed the same, uh, you, you would uh, recognize them as being an intelligent human being, far more in touch with Gaia, far more connected mm -hmm. with the planet because they are living with the seasons. They're not in a, a box with air con or, or central heating. If you're in the UK, we have more heating than air con. So I, I really do feel it annoys me because I'm a, a historian uh, myself and it really annoys me when you get all of these stuffy historians saying that they were wearing kind of animal skins they were not, they had linen. That is a fact. You find it as uh, artifacts, for example. And, uh, and I think they were highly intelligent in mathematics, astronomy, geomancy, all of the trained sciences.
Well, I mean, and they had to, too. You think about us today and why that they say that we're so technologically advanced because we have all this technology. But this technology, although it makes everything more accessible to us, it makes us as human beings a lot more stupider because we're able to get that information at any time instead of actually learning it. So, I mean, from my perspective, I would think that the ancient people are so much more intelligent than we are because this is things that they had to come up with. They had to use these resources and figure out how to do these things. Whereas now we just Google everything. <laughs> that is such a fantastic point and so relevant to our lives uh, today. And also about the very ancient people of, of the British Isles and elsewhere across Europe and indeed the world. What I discovered in about 2015 was that the people that uh, traditionally built Stonehenge were called the ancient Britons. And the ancient Britons, uh, I, I discovered, had uh, very long elongated skulls, okay? I photographed them at Cambridge. Uh, I've uh, analyzed them and that's gonna be my next book on, big book on Stonehenge. So they were very short as well because in their burial deposits, the femur bone, that's your long, bone of your leg, you know, like skull and crossbones, that's always the femur bone mm -hmm. and, uh, and the skull. Um, when you have a femur bone, you can uh, anticipate the height of someone. The anthropologists do it and police would do it in a murder incident, for, for example. Uh, so they were quite short, these people, with very narrow uh, faces, looking very ethereal looking and very fey looking. So and these were the, uh, the people that, you know, initiated and built the first phase of Stonehenge, for example. And when I was at Cambridge and gently putting my hand not on the skull because you're in a controlled aircon environment with gloves on, you, you know, the sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was putting my, my hand gently close to her throat chakra, over her third eye chakra, and then kind of over her long skull like that, if you will. And there were almost two pulse points as if these elongated skulled people had two crown chakras. Now, if indeed that was the case, for example, then I think they were, their spirituality was heightened and intense, mm -hmm. okay? And maybe they could use dowsing as I've, I've described earlier, or maybe they could really uh, understand the environment a bit much because what I did record uh, a few years ago now on standing stones like at Stonehenge and elsewhere you get a standing stone mm -hmm. obelisks in uh, ancient Egypt they have certain areas on them which uh, emit a lot of electromagnetic energy okay so we measured that electromagnetic energy uh, because I could douse it and I wanted to prove it you mm -hmm. know uh, to, to the world rather than said my dad said it doesn't exactly, sound yeah. that good you know so uh, so I went on to uh, to prove it and then the, the guy that was analyzing the hertz frequency that was mm -hmm. coming out as well as the electromagnetic field said it's coming out at 18 hertz and I said well what's the relevance to that mm -hmm. and he said you here at 20 now what if these elongated skulled people could hear the stones hear earth energies as well as we're very visual people we see the stones we touch the stones but i think the our ancestors had a more enhanced perception and could hear things beyond our ability to hear today do you think that that this extra let's say chakra that that they have right this this crown chakra could it possibly be like a way for them to have like a, a sixth sense of what you're talking about, a way to to tap into a sense that we that we don't have here as humans now and that we've lost. 
I think that could indeed well be the case because when you when I look at the settlement of where these people lived, uh, rather than where they worship, like at Stonehenge, Stonehenge had a settlement about two miles away. They never lived in the ancient site area, and it's called Derrington Walls. And when I was analysing the earth energies there, they they lived upon, upon very healing, conducive earth energies, not the really powerful ones that can shift your consciousness like mm-hmm. Stonehenge. It yeah. must be too much to, yeah, to, to live on. Up. Yeah, exactly. So I think, yes, they were understanding their environment very heightened. So they knew where to live. They knew where to place their, their buildings. They're all on harmonic energy, avoiding any form of geopathic stress that we previously discussed with the underground gang water you know groundwater as uh, water boards call it or the curry grid they avoided all of that mm-hmm. and only found the harmonic energies who were these unlong elongated skull um beings do you think they were humans were they hybrids did they come from somewhere else who do you think they were There has been some recent DNA testing from Oxford University, which is considered quite an upmarket university uh, in England and indeed the world. Mm -hmm. And they've analyzed what they call the ancient Britons. They don't call them long skulled. I mean, I've shown Mm -hmm. archaeologists the long, I've got photographs of them. And it is astonishing how it's just ignored. It Mm -hmm. it seriously uh, is. but yes, uh, the, the, the DNA suggested that they uh, had uh, traditional ancient British uh, DNA. And then round about the time of 2500 BC, you had a European immigration come into England, uh, predominantly from the Netherlands, but you know elsewhere from Germany. And there, uh, they were much taller, they were much bigger, and their DNA was completely different to the ancient Britons. But 500 years of interacting with this beaker culture, as it's called, from Europe, 90% of the ancient British DNA had been eradicated, probably through intermarriaging or like what happened to the Incas uh, and the the fate there, the Spanish brought disease Mm -hmm. uh, with them and there was no immunity to it. So there could be a combination of different things of what happened to them and who they were. For the skulls, I know that, you know, some societies have like the elongate the necks of, of their tribes and things like that. Do you see these elongated skulls as being something that was maybe done to themselves or something that they were more genetically born with? Like, were they trying to mimic maybe extraterrestrial beings that they saw by elongating their head or was it something that was just natural in them? That's a really good question. And uh, cranial deformation is, you know, popular with many different uh, cultures. But um, uh, Brian Forster, he's the expert in the conehead paracus uh, skulls of Peru, for instance. And, and I, uh, Brian is an expert on elongated skulls. And uh, he, he, in his research, he found uh, an elongated fetus inside of a woman. Yeah. Whoa. So if, if you're if we have that as, as solid evidence, then you can say, well, it, you can't do cranial deformation in, in the, the womb. womb. Yeah, you can outside. So one presumes that uh, a lot of them are natural. But the elongated people in Peru, as I also said to Brian, is the same as Stonehenge. They were like the ruling elite. 
Uh, and I think, you know, there were some people mimicking that as well. You know, it's almost like I want that because, you know, you've got that. And maybe some people were permitted to perform cranial deformation. But in my own research of the European long-skulled people, there's very young children with exceptionally long skulls. So you do need a time span to, you know, manipulate the soft, pliable child skull. It doesn't happen overnight, think- yeah. No, so I think, you know, the very young ones, and especially Brian's outstanding research of the fetus long skull, then I think, you know, the jury should say that's the evidence that there are natural long skull people. Absolutely evidence. And why do you think that's something that's being ignored by mainstream scientists? Well, because once you start to say, you know, there was a race of people that didn't look like us. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And we are sort of, we think that we know our history. Yeah. yeah. And academia thinks they know our history. And then when someone like me pops up, because I've studied archaeology with Lisa Brown at Oxford University, I've studied with Wessex archaeologists at Bath University, I can speak their language. Uh, and when someone like me pops up and says, you know, you've got all of this evidence, you've got all of this evidence, they kind of see you as being on the perimeter of something, but just go away, mm-hmm. go away, because it doesn't fit our uh, timelines, it doesn't fit our our academia, our history. So it is about sort of really reaching out to the younger people, reaching out across the generations and saying, here is the evidence don't be spoon-fed by the so-called professors of UCL London, of Oxford, of Cambridge, because there is another narrative, then there are undercurrents going on, and that's where the truth lies. Well, it sounds like it's very similar to, you know, the problem that they have in Egypt right now with a lot of the things that they're discovering and their government not wanting to come out with this because it ruins their timeline or their idea of what, you know, ancient Egypt was. So it seems like it's not just Egypt now, but it's bleeding over into the rest of the world where it seems that they want to stick to this narrative that they've had for a long time of what our history is. And even though we are showing them evidence and facts and proof that they just don't want to admit to it because of how drastically it would change, I think, everybody's lives. Exactly, because you'd you'd have to change the education system Mm -hmm. uh, for one, and you'd have to be, oh, (laughs) open-minded rather than (laughs) Mm -hmm. being sort of so uh, uh, narrow-minded, which, you know, academia uh, only uh, has what it can see and observe. That that now that's a good thing in one way, mm-hmm. but if you close everything out, then you you don't allow things to evolve naturally. And I think that's where people like you and I come in. We see a much bigger picture, and we can see that there's far more going on, and we want to contribute, and we can. And that's what shows like this are doing. You're contributing to a much wider picture and understanding. And I always celebrate that because because you really are. Everybody's doing their bit to give the truth uh, of what is really going on. Well, and it's true. And, you know, what's important is the things that you're doing, too, like going out to these lectures and and speaking and and making sure this information is out there. You know, you're talking this year at Contact of the Desert. What is your lecture about this year? Well, I just love, uh, you know, finding things in the Stonehenge environs and, you know, finding all the kind of weird stuff, really. Yeah. Uh, 
So what I've uh, discovered in the past year or so, and it is truly quite fascinating, is yeah, uh, um, a very strange burial, very uh, close to Stonehenge, and recorded by what we call over here antiquarians. And antiquarians really are um, old old uh, archaeologists in the like 18th and 19th centuries. You see what I mean? They're mm -hmm. like the kind of Victorians, and they were always men, and mm -hmm. they were always always moneyed so of course you know like a sir or you know an yeah. earl or, or, yeah. or something like that because they were landowners and they owned owned the land basically posh people with uh, shovels mm -hmm. <laughs> is, is what they are and uh, they found you see normally what used to happen uh five and a half thousand years ago around stonehenge is the elongated skulled people were buried in what's called a long barrow and a long barrow is a really long earthen monument like that and burial deposits were placed inside them and they were sealed off so they mm -hmm. were like a time capsule really and so these antiquarians went around the stonehenge environs and elsewhere in in europe and started digging into them and said oh what we could find and they used to write quite good archaeological reports by the 19th century and normally what would happen in these long bowers is they place as i mentioned earlier the skulls the long bones and occasionally a whole body and long bowers were communal so it wouldn't be like today you have your own grave mm -hmm. it would be you and your society so you could have 30 40 people all in the same long barrow that's the standard practice of the neolithic in this one report that i found incidentally misfiled um just by you know um synchronicity or happy mm -hmm. chance have you oh, yeah. to interpret it uh it wasn't like that it mm -hmm. was describing this strange being being surrounded by long skulled people creating a circle of skeletons with this one being in the middle. That's mm. unprecedented. No, that does yeah. not happen. It's the skull and it's the long bones. It was a, a, a whole person. So I thought, well, that's unusual to, to begin with. And I read on and then it started describing that the skull was very different of the central being and that it had its eyes very close to the top of its head. And I thought, I've heard this before. This is uh, describing Lloyd Pye's star child that was found in uh, in South America, uh, I believe. And but instead of just having the skull as as Lloyd Pye had, it was the whole skeleton that they were describing. And they when they got to the kind of base of the spine, they said this uh, this being had a tail uh, on it. And that they were making all of these notes and saying, you know, it is highly unusual. This is highly uh, fascinating. It must have stopped them in their tracks. Yeah. So we, we have the most unusual burial found in the British Isles. That's that's uh, a fact. And believe me, uh, I have read every single archaeological report of every single mound in the Stonehenge environs. You know, I'm a methodical uh, historian in, in that respect. So I, I know every single one in comparison. And when you, you have a look at what can this be? Why is that so special? Is it the person that's special? Clearly that's the case. But what could cause a tale if it was a human being? Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna, I, what I always do is I give two lots of evidence 
because I know you're thinking people. I'm not going to purport all of my belief systems on people. I give two lots of uh, evidence and say, let's make up our own minds intellectually by ourselves, because there's too many new ages out there with belief systems pouring it out. Believe me, believe me, mm-hmm. believe me. And I'm not of that ilk. Thank you. So, <laughs> So the uh, the only thing that really could cause that a tail and maybe a deformity of, of the skull would be a condition called spina bifida that is very rare today mm-hmm. in modern day societies. You can get that still in societies that are undernourished during pregnancy uh, and a variety of different things. And the only thing that could cause the skull to have the eyes sort of up here uh, as it were, would be uh, possibly a brain tumor, but it mm-hmm. had no signs of uh, or organic uh, disformity other than that. Uh, or, you know, some type of water on the brain that can cause the skull to sort of, you know, uh, balloon out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would cause it as well. But it also sounds like both of those things would be something that would be considered f- fatal, right? And it didn't seem like, it seemed like this was like a, a being that had lived its full potential of life, right? It wasn't like it was a small child being with this. It looked like it was an adult. That's an excellent point you've raised. Absolutely excellent. Because yes, and I I, I agree. I think you're right. And I've, I've gone down that path uh, myself as well. Because if it was, uh, you know, something untoward, the body reflects it. Mm-hmm. it. It really does. It reflects it in life and it reflects it in death. Mm-hmm. I mean, e- even if you're murdered and you're a victim in the landscape, your bone doesn't self-heal. Therefore, you know, it was a fatal wound or something. Yep. You know, I mean, uh, the... These, these things, you know, are evident. That's a really good point that that, that you raised. So thank you uh, for that. Uh, and the other strange thing about, well, it's not strange. I think it's a, a deliberate uh, repression of uh, historical fact. When you come to all of the very highly unusual burials uh, in around a ceremonial landscape, they go missing. So mm-hmm. we've got the archaeological report. We've got an exceptionally detailed report because it was so strange, mm-hmm. because it's unprecedented. Yet the bones apparently have all gone missing. And yet the bones of uh, the other people in the ceremonial landscape, not that far from this burial, well, you can track those down to Cambridge. You can track those down to, to Oxford. But the really unusual ones, well, they seem to just disappear off the off the face of the planet. Or, as I believe, they are being stored somewhere and they never went missing. They oh. are there. So when you, say, when you say that these things go missing and that they're being stored somewhere, I'm with you on that one, I believe it. But who do you think is like behind this? Do you think that it's individual governments that are stopping this type of information going out? Or do you think it's kind of like a bigger group who's putting a stop to this kind of information being like really researched? Well, I think it, it, it stretches far beyond England, like in the, some of the institutes that you have that de- dealt with the giants of Ohio, the Smithsonian Institute, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, probably, I don't know, but France has probably got its equivalent. You know, Spain's yeah. probably got it, its equivalent. So I think it's quite an organized uh, group that is, is probably behind it rather than just a, a government in a country. Yeah. You see what I mean? Because Absolutely. it's so prevalent. So you know, this this is why it's very important for uh, places like contact where people come together, exchange ideas. 
and and allow a bigger picture to, uh, to be formed like i said earlier it's about understanding the bigger picture and having the facts before us and saying what if what if this is the evidence in the British Isles of extraterrestrial contact five and a half thousand years ago? Whereas Lloyd Pye's uh, discovery, if my memory serves me correct, was 900 years mm -hmm. ago. This could be the oldest extraterrestrial evidence in the ceremonial landscape associated to one of the world's most recognizable monuments called Stonehenge. Mm -hmm. And I feel like these types of sacred sites are always over in the Europe area. Is there anything in the States that has any type of the same- Significance. Uh, yeah, significance and energy field? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you have the, Avery Henge is just down the road from me, the world's largest stone circle and Stonehenge is up the road. I'm thoroughly spoiled here. <laughs> I know. Nice. Uh, nice. That's, that's a really big henge, but uh, Avery Henge, but uh, you have the biggest henge in the world uh, in Newark, uh, Ohio. You also have an amazing ancient site called Serpent Mound, which is uh, a huge earthen effigy uh, in the landscape. And you also have um, huge uh, mounds and pyramids uh, in Cahokia, the world's largest uh, mound structure in the world is at Cahokia. You have a wonderful healing site called Woodhenge, not far by. Then you have all of the sites of the Anazazi uh, in Arizona, mm -hmm. Charco in the Four Corners region. And you, the equivalent of the Kivas, uh, which are the round ceremonial areas associated with sites of the ancient Anazazi, the ancestors of the Hopi, they are very similar energetically to a stone circle in the British Isles. Mm. Do you think that. that because of the the world we live in now, you know, there's a lot of talk right now in our mainstream media about government, you know, disclosing aliens and the report and things like that. We're not super big fans of it. But do you think that with all of this kind of stuff in the media, it's going to make it so that going forward, getting this type of really important information out is going to be easier? Or do you think that all of this talk about aliens and UFOs and the government is actually going to kind of harm us in the long run? That is a really good question. Uh, <laughs> it's just a money question. It and, is. Uh, <laughs> And uh, and to be honest, uh, I'm on the fence either way. If I if I'm honest, because so are we. I, I don't. Yeah, I was going to say I don't know which way it would go because the next minute you never know what the government's going to throw the ball to. Mm -hmm. Do you mean it's almost like a ball game? Well, one minute we're going to throw the ball and you can catch it, and the next minute, oh no, we're going to put it another one over there. So uh, I, I await with interest. I, I think we're the same way. We're not excited about any of this. I, I'm. I'm excited to see what's going to happen next but less and less hope as the day goes on when it comes to the government well i'm hoping that with a push of kind of going into the taboo which is you know ufos even if it's coming from the government still just bringing that out to people i'm hoping that maybe over time we'll have the same thing when it comes to our ancient history and these ancient sites you know maybe maybe this is one step in that direction and there will be a trajectory i'm sure it'll be at least 20 years but you know at least I think it might be a step in the right direction to um, making people more aware of things that they don't normally see and don't normally know about. Yeah, I mean, that again, that is a huge uh, 
the smise of the situation, and uh, and I agree. I do remain uh, hopeful. I remain uh, as well slightly cynical. Yeah, that's good though. <laughs> uh, but you know, we we need to move forward together. The main thing is, you know, no matter what the governments are saying, uh, there is a big movement uh, in the, in the UK with people like you know David Icke and, and many others. And if we all if we all keep together, if we all keep communicating, if we all keep sharing information and and allowing that that to occur, and let the old gatekeepers, you know, whether they're the gatekeepers of the new age, whether they're the gatekeepers of ancient history, and they are there and if we let other people move forward with information and become more collective rather than mm. listen to the chosen few then then i think we can all read the book together definitely yeah. that's Absolutely. a great point so what uh, can, i think sorry oh no, okay what can this newer generation that's being kind of introduced to to these things how can they what can they do going forward let's say dousing for example right how can the newer generation continue on the, that tradition like how do they get involved how do they get their hands dirty how do they learn about this stuff Dowson is a really easy ancient art to learn I mean I've been uh, teaching it myself for you know for uh, decades now and there's only a very few people and they'll normally they don't want to learn it in the beginning so they won't go along anyway yeah but but most people pick it up very easily because it's a kind of uh, dousing or dousing rods. And sometimes when you've doused a long time, your hands become very sensitive. Uh, we know what's good and bad for us. It's about, you know, when you're uh, in evolution, people didn't eat all the poison berries. They realized that, oh, yeah. certain things you can eat. Well, it's a bit like our body recognizes that and our kind of unconscious self. So when you go to a house, you, I bet you guys have uh, done it. Oh, strange atmosphere mm -hmm. here. Yep. Yeah, Definitely. Exactly. And, and dowsing, then you say, oh, it's a bit, a bit strange like that here. And then dowsing, you can start to decode it by learning different uh, techniques through, you know, learning from a master dowser or maybe learning from, from a book. YouTube, I mean, I've looked at some of the dowsing tutorials there and I've been dowsing for, you know, most of my life. I find it very difficult. And I think, <laughs> I think, why are you putting it like that? Why yeah. are you making it sound so complicated? You're making yourself sound very clever. But, but really, there's just three very simple principles of, of dowsing, and that's knowing how to hold a, a rod, uh, telling the rod to show me a direction to something, say, for example, and that's my dowsing rod, and I say, show me the direction of the nearest underground water, the rod will do this, wave that, and then point. And basically, it's going, hey, it's over there. Over there. Ah. And so you follow it. That's called tracking. So my rod's got directional dousing, that's called. It's pointing to where I should walk. So I'm following it. Even if it moves like that, I follow it. Do you see what I mean? Absolutely. So it's like just it's like following something. And then when it goes found, bang, you know that uh, you you found uh, the, the, the underground water because that was your question bef beforehand. Show me the nearest underground water stream. Show me the nearest grid line. And there's certain techniques that you use to build up a rapport of knowing lots of different energies so that when you go to a house or an ancient site, you can think, oh, no, I know, it's probably going to be this there, probably going to be that there, probably going to be this, that, that. 
you see what I mean? Mm. And before you know it, you're finding it all interacting with the positive energy, leaving the kind of uh, negative energies uh, to one side in a house or negating them with certain techniques. And before you know it, you could raise the energy uh, in a house and live more importantly with a true connection with Gaia, connected to the earth upon which we live. Because to, to me, that's what a lot of us have forgotten. How to live in harmony with Gaia because we're so used to, uh, like you said, said uh, earlier, uh, Jamie, with with you know, uh, with all our technology. Mm -hmm. Well, if I don't know something, Google will know. My yep. body knows, your body knows, and that's the thing. If we reconnect our own bodies to the body of, of Gaia's then before we know it, there's a relationship that happens between you and the, the Earth Mother, Gaia. And that's a beautiful bond. It sounds very intuitive. Uh, very. You think your intuitive abilities yeah. with that and like a way to strengthen that as well. Well, and it sounds like too, like, you know, you're talking about dousing as it being just a skill that we all have, you know, very similar to, let's say, remote viewing, they say. It's just something you have to tap into. And as long as you practice it and you keep going, you're going to keep furthering it and doing it. You know, there's so many things that us as humans that we don't access inside of our own brains and our consciousness that are basically superpowers that we all have access to. It's just a matter of actually putting yourself out there and doing them. And I love that term superpowers. <laughs> we have, we, we, we have that all that all within us. You see, we really do. You've hit the nail uh, on the head and all it takes, all it takes is a, a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of showing what you can find by, by somebody that is, is uh, experienced. And before you know it, you pick it up. It isn't difficult. And then, in fact, on the YouTube, you know, tutorials, I would say give, give them a, a complete miss because, like I said, I was watching one <laughs> on how to find the curry grid, which my, my late father introduced that to, to the English-speaking communities. It was a German discovery, uh, incidentally, and I thought, whoa, I've been doused now for 25 years and following what you do, <laughs> I would give up, actually. I'd just go, well, I think I'll put the, put the rod stand. And I do feel that people try to overcomplicate things when if you keep some things uh, graspable and, and say, this is how easy it is. So some people that, for example, have been trying to use dowsing for, you know, like, oh, I've, I've been trying for a year. Within an hour with me, two hours, they go, oh, so is that, so that's it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now I've shown you the principles. Now we can go on to find things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you do a step-by-step -step process, my goodness, it's easy. And more, like I say, the important thing about dowsing is reconnecting you to the planet. So it's far more than just finding water. It's far more than just finding uh, ley lines or positive energy. It's that reconnecting, that understanding of uh, the Earth Mother's body in relationship to our own. And I really feel in this age where we've got such a disconnect uh, between the two, the more that that relationship uh, is given, the better humanity will be in the future by forming a relationship with the Earth and not for economical reasons but for metaphysical reasons it's incredibly empowering work that you're doing Absolutely. it truly is honestly and and it can be fun as well i mean come on go into an ancient site and discover well you know they say that it's when lovely. you're doing when you're doing a job that you truly love it never feels like work you know and it sounds like you truly love what you're doing which means that you're just on the right path 
adventurous. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do. I do. I do feel that. That's for sure. All right, Maria, it was so fantastic to have you here today. We will have to do another episode at some point because I feel like there's a million more questions that we could ask you about this <laughs> stuff. But we are really looking forward to your lecture at Contact of the Desert. We're so excited to watch it this weekend. Oh, my gosh, it's almost I here. know. My gosh, I forgot. It's so close. But I yes, know. I've learned so much from you already in this short amount of time. So I definitely can't wait to see what you're bringing to Contact this year. It sounds very, very exciting. Great. Well, th thanks for having me. Uh, and uh, you'll keep up the good work yourselves. Uh, you're great to uh, talk to. And, uh, and I've really enjoyed my time with you both. Thank you so oh, much. It's been our you. pleasure. Know, our absolutely. pleasure. 100% a pleasure you. on ours. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Bye, Maria. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye. Cheerio. Bye.